Welcome to today's Voices of Conservation Science. This is a podcast that focuses on people doing science that's then used to conserve natural resources. I'm Andrea Litt, and I'll be your host for today's episode. Today, I'm here in the studio with Kristen Cook, who's a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you. Thanks for coming to visit with us today. Yeah, absolutely. I want to start out by having you just give us a brief introduction to you, and we'll get into more details after that. Sure, yeah. So I grew up in Maryland, and I grew up riding horses. And so when I went to get my first bachelor's, I was like, I'll follow my dreams. And I went to college for horses. And this is the classic little girl dream that yes. I had, too. Yep, it was very ex- expensive dream. So um, <laughs> not the most lucrative choice. And then after that, I moved to Montana and started working for a ranch. And I had what I refer to as my quarter life crisis and went back to college at the University of Montana and got a second bachelor's in wildlife biology. And then in 2013, I got hired by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, which was like life changing for me. And I've been with them ever since. And I've worked for a wildlife refuge for several years. And I worked for a wildlife health office doing bison work. And now I'm a biologist at the Ennis National Fish Hatchery. My goodness. So we've got horses. Yes. We've got bison. Yep. We've got fish. Yep. And we also have a big move. Mussels. To mussels. Yes. That we're going to talk about later. So lots of different species. Yes. And you move from Ohio, right? Maryland. But I went to college in Ohio. Okay. Yes. That's why I had Ohio in my head. Mm -hmm. So Maryland, Ohio, Montana. Lots of changes going mm-hmm. on there. Any insights you want to tell us about that, that fill in some of those gaps yes. of species or places? Oh, I was just going to say Montana <laughs> is the best, so I'll save you guys trouble of, of moving to. I've also been in Wisconsin and North Carolina. Montana is where it's at. So. <laughs> now everyone will flood here. Yeah. Oh, no. I take it back. <laughs> okay. And so you decided you were going to change your major, get mm-hmm. a second degree, which is impressive, a full-on second degree. Yes. So you decided you're going to take on a whole lot more work, but you decided somehow it was going to be worth it. Yeah. And I, I think I just got really lucky, to be honest. It, it panned out for me. And and then you talked about the Fish and Wildlife Service. So yes. can you just introduce us to that agency, that federal agency, and tell us a little bit about the kind of work that you've been doing so far? Yeah. So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is a conservation agency. It's a federal agency, so it's funded with taxpayer dollars, Mm -hmm. and it largely focuses on the Endangered Species Act and uh, animals that are listed as endangered species or threatened. But then there's all kinds of different components of fish and wildlife, too. So there's um, national or federal refuge land that preserves federal land with wildlife and fish and then um, hatcheries as well, and all, all kinds of different offices. And you worked on a bunch of different kinds of species mm-hmm. and had different kinds of jobs in the time that you've been with the Fish and Wildlife Yes, Service. yeah. So uh, originally I was shared be- between a wildlife refuge doing Arctic grayling work mm-hmm. for several years. And then I also worked for a wildlife health office doing bison work. And so when I was with wildlife health, we would genetically and disease test bison uh, the federal bison herds, which was really fun, but also really intimidating to nasal swab a bison. <laughs> yep, not quite, not yeah. quite the normal thing that we yeah. might think of. Yeah, kind of intimidating. And then I also at the wildlife refuge did a lot of Arctic grayling work, 
where I was getting to canoe every day and just be on the creeks. And there were several different projects down there with Arctic grayling that I, I had my hands in, which was fun. That sounds like a nice diversity of tasks and, yes. and challenges. Fish and bison. And those are really conservation oriented. Did you always know that you were interested in conservation or did you always know that you could get paid to have a job in conservation? No, um, definitely not. I moved out to Montana and I was working for a ranch out here. Mm-hmm. And when I had my quarter life crisis, right? I knew of that. I know. I like knew I wanted to do something outside still, but I wanted something where I had more job satisfaction out of it and also wanted to do something where I was like using my brain a little bit more. And I was living in Darby, Montana at the time, and the elk numbers were going down in the Bitterroot Valley. And the public associated it with the wolves that were reintroduced to Yellowstone Mm -hmm. because they were seeing more wolves. But the science was showing that it was probably caused by mountain lions. So mountain lions were um, kind of controlling what was happening with the elk numbers. And I saw this like disconnect between the public and the science. And I was like, man, this would be a fun job to have where you're like problem solving and it has these all these different components and you still get to be outside. And so that's kind of what made me go back to school for wildlife. That's really interesting. And and that you, you were wanting to jump into that very controversial issue yeah you know it wasn't that I wanted to jump in it it's just that I was like oh this is interesting. I could, be, I could be part of this or something like it at least yeah were there particular people that were instrumental in helping you during that quarter life crisis time and and, and figuring out your your new chosen path mm, you know I think if I had to choose one person I'd have to say it was my dad and he's actually not at all outdoorsy and I don't think he knows what arctic grayling are or freshwater mussels are but Um, he raised my sister and I to just follow our dreams and to go to school for whatever your passion is. And that's why I went to college for horses and Mm -hmm. and that didn't pan out. Right. Um, and so when I went back to school, I was still like kind of following some kind of pipe dream, you know? And and so he probably really pushed me down that path if it was something I was interested in. So that's great that you had that support, even if he didn't quite understand all the nuances of what you were, what you were working on. You talked earlier about um, being really interested in having that tangible thing, that, that way you could contribute, the way you could help with the problem solving. And I think that's a, it's a really nice, um, rewarding aspect of this kind of work that we might not be building something that you can see necessarily. Mm-hmm. We're not building houses and we're not um, maybe creating art or something like that, but we are we do have our hands in a lot of these problems and that problem solving really is the, the sort of more tangible thing that that comes right. out on the other side that is exciting yeah did you always were you always interested in fish you've mentioned arctic grayling um but you had the the horses and all these other mammals in your life how did you how'd you get excited about fish um honestly i wasn't excited about fish until i was thrown on a fisheries project <laughs> started and learning yeah i like knew nothing about fish if i'm being honest like i think i went fishing twice prior to that and um I was on my first of several Arctic grayling projects and I got to canoe every day and I was working in these areas that were restricted to the public and I felt like I was experiencing and seeing things that not many people get to see in their lifetime and I realized then that like fisheries is where it's at and I wanted to be on the water all the time and handling 
big, beautiful cherry cutthroat and Arctic grayling with their beautiful dorsal fins. And, and so that's that's kind of when I know. I that, knew. That's great. That basically, it was the getting the experience, mm-hmm. learning about these places and these species. Yeah, absolutely. And that's what a lot of times we, we need to know what the possibilities are mm-hmm. to get excited. Any hurdles along the way? You had this, maybe the quarter life crisis was the ma- major hurdle, but other, was that it or were there other hurdles that got, got in your path? Yeah, I, I think I've been with the service for six years now. So I've, I've been in this field and I could probably spend all day talking about hurdles I've had. You know, I think one thing that I still sometimes struggle with is being a female biologist in a world that's like mostly dominated by men right and their perception of a female biologist sometimes still like catches me off guard and being able to keep up with the men in the field physically and being competitive it it can definitely um uh it can be a challenge yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. absolutely. And 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 maybe what it doesn't always come come across in some of the conversations we have is that the work a lot of the work that we can do or need to do in the field or in the lab can be really physically challenging. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that can be that can be hard for mm-hmm. a lot of a lot of people. And and you specifically raise the issue of of the sort of um, gender balance in the field. And certainly that's changing. Mm-hmm. It's changed during the the course of my career so far. But but there are definitely places and and sub disciplines and some kinds of jobs that that might still have a a, a difference in in the ratios of males to females. And yeah, I think, I think things are changing and maybe, mm-hmm. maybe you can speak to whether that's been your experience as well. Yeah. I think it just depends on where you're at and a particular situation, but I, I'm often the only female in an office situation, especially in, in fisheries and right. in my world. And it, it still surprises me sometimes when um, I feel like there's almost an attitude as this only female, like I am the secretary by default oh, or like, you know, oh dear, the phone rings and it's just expected that you get it. And I've had male coworkers ask me to mail things for them. And, and so it's like, sometimes I'm like, wait, what? I'm, you know, as a biologist sitting there, I'm like, okay, uh, I can teach you how to mail something if you'd like, you know, but I, I think, um, things are on the rise and I see how many females are in the graduate program here, which is really exciting. And and so I'm sure that this um, attitude towards female biologists or perception of them is changing in a positive light. Have you, can you speak to any kind of ways you've handled those, those situations when you've encountered them? Yeah. You mentioned I ab- you can teach them to mail. Yes. I absolutely <laughs> just don't enable that behavior. <laughs> um, I'm happy to get the phone if I'm near it when it rings, but um I think that you just have to realize that you're a biologist here and and um, help them understand that we're all a team and we can all do this together, whether it's answering the phone, you can mail your own stuff, or we can all clean the office. And and so I think just helping to change people's perceptions. Absolutely. No, yeah. I think that's great, um, having the conversations that, that can change the situation for somebody else. Yeah. That's great. I'm here with Kristen Cook, who's a graduate student at Montana State University in the Department of Ecology. So I want to shift gears from your past to your present and talk a little bit about your current research. And so I want to start that conversation um, by having you introduce us to the species that you're working on now. Sure. So I'm working on the Western Pearl Shell Mussel, and it's 
a freshwater mussel. It's one of three native to Montana. And it's the only one that's found in western Montana, and it inhabits trout streams. And this mussel lives up to 100 years old, so wow. it's really long-lived. Wow, yes. I would have never guessed that. Yeah, and it can reproduce up to 100 years old, which is even cooler. That's very impressive. Yeah. And you said it's in western Montana. Does it is there a range outside of Montana as well? Yes, and it's declining through most of its range. So um, it's in the Pacific Northwest area. And why are some reasons for its current decline? Um, There are a lot of reasons that lead to the decline of freshwater mussels. has to do with sedimentation and poor quality habitat. A lot of it has to do with their fish host because most freshwater mussels require a a fish host during their larval life stage. And without that fish host, they can't complete their life cycle or metamorphosize into juvenile mussels. And so when there is a lack of fish host or that fish can't access the mussel population or there are passage problems for their fish host, then that leads to problems for that freshwater mussel. So clearly I need a little reproduction introduction to to mussels and how, how that whole cycle works. Yeah. So females will generally fertilize their eggs by siphoning in sperm released from male mussels. However, some species like the western pearl shells can actually self-fertilize. The females can when population densities are really low. Wow. So if there's not enough guys around, they can take care of it. (laughs) And then um, what happens is they will brood their eggs for a period of weeks and females that are brooding eggs are called gravid females. Okay. And then when these eggs are mature, they're called glochidia. So gravid females will brood their glochidia and then when they're ready and these glochidia are ripe, they release them into the water current. And then the glochidia infect their fish host. And, and with, so where do how mm-hmm. they get ingested? So there are a whole variety of ways. <laughs> Just open that a they Pandora's box. Huh? No, it's it's fine. Um, but generally, what happens is there's some kind of contact between these glochidia and their fish host, and the the glochidia are like tiny little mussels, but they're still eggs, so they're not actually juvenile mussels, but they look like them, and they snap shut on either on the fish's gills or on their fins. Okay, so they're outside the body. Yes. Okay. And now they're attached? They're attached to the fish. And then what happens? And then they they actually get insisted on that fish. So hard encrusted. Yes. Yep. And they stay there depending on the species of mussel from weeks to months. And during that time, these glochidia, which are just eggs, metamorphosize and transform from eggs to juvenile mussels. So it's something kind of like what's happening in, say, an amphibian. You've got a, an egg and then some sort of um, larval stage like a tadpole. But mm-hmm. now we're talking mussels. Yeah. Similar. Yep. Okay. So we're in the larval stage. Yes. What happens next? So once they have transformed into juvenile mussels, they drop off of their fish host. Okay. And so they're landing wherever their fish is taking them. And the main benefit that the mussels get from going or transforming on their fish host is that they catch a free ride. Right. And so now they have the opportunity to move upstream, move into different tributaries and spread their distribution. And you said that there there's sometimes it has to be matched with a specific fish host. So just a single species or a group of species? 
So it depends on the muscle. There's different host specificity. And what that means is some muscles can use one species of fish only. Okay. Other muscles can use a whole variety of fish hosts. And they're like more like generalists where they can attach to all kinds of different things. And so for the Western pearl shell, historically, they used West Slope cutthroat as their host fish. However, pearl shells in general, other species of pearl shells, can use a variety of salmonid hosts. Okay. And um, in Montana, we have pearl shell populations that are showing signs of recruitment. So we're seeing mussel beds that have juvenile mussels present. So we know they're reproducing and they're, they're healthy populations and West Slope cutthroat are absent. So we know they're using a different fish host species, but we don't know what they're using. There's lots of um, opportunities and ways that this whole process might not get completed. If, if the correct. eggs can't find the right host, if they can't, um, correct wherever they land after that. Wow. And I'm guessing maybe there's some gaps you mentioned in the, in our knowledge about mussels. Do we, do we know a lot about, about mussels and their, no. their biology? Well, their biology, yes, but when it comes to mussels in Montana, there's really very little known, and especially with the western pearl shell, which is a sensitive species and a species of concern here. Um, there's just a whole giant gap of information that we need to fill, and really the only thing that has been done with pearl shells in Montana so far is getting a really good idea of which populations are reproducing and healthy and those populations that are declining and there have been some translocation efforts. And what are you focused on for your particular project? My project is looking at the reproductive events of western pearl shells in Montana and we have three main components. So the first is to determine when they're reproducing. So we want to know when those females are gravid or brooding eggs and when they're releasing glochidia. And that's really important because it it seems like the conservation efforts of pearl shells in Montana are likely going to go into this route of propagating pearl shells for either reintroducing them where they've been extirpated or augmenting them, augmenting populations that are declining. There's also talk about infecting West Slope cutthroat with pearl shells and restoring both native species at once. So lots of human intervention to try and yeah. help these populations along. Yeah. And in order to infect fish or propagate mussels, you have to be able to collect gravid females. Like you, it's like criteria, like you cannot start without a pregnant female. Right. And so knowing when that happens is really important. Okay, so that's that's question one or piece yes. one. What's, yes. what's the next piece? So the next piece looks at the different host species that populations of pearl shells are using in Montana. So like I said, we just don't know what they're using here. And different populations may have different host specificity even within Montana. Okay, and then is there mm -hmm. is there more? Yes, yeah, so the last piece is the most interesting piece. <laughs> so Best for last. Yes. So we want to look at these reproductive events, not only on our really healthy populations, but also on the populations that we know are not recruiting. So you can have a population of pearl shells, and if they're all like 50 years old or 70 years old, and you don't have any younger mussels or juveniles present, 
then it appears they haven't recruited in like 50 years or so. And so we want to look at these reproductive events on these non-viable populations is, is what we call them when they're all like geriatric. And <laughs> poor things. Yeah, poor things. And so we by doing that, by looking at these different reproductive events on non-viable populations, we can determine are they not reproducing and that's why we're not seeing juveniles or are they reproducing and just not recruiting, meaning there's an issue with the fish host or Maybe juveniles are dropping off their fish host in poor habitat, not surviving, things like that. Yeah, like you're saying, there's lots of places, lots of ways things can go wrong. Yeah. I'm curious how you age a mussel. How do you know yeah. one's 50 years old? It's very similar to fish, actually. So they have growth rings. And it's harder to see it on pearl shells than other species of mussel. But with every, every year is another growth ring added. Wow. So. Wow, that's really interesting. Um, where are you in the process of your work? I have not started. <laughs> okay. So lots of, lots of new things to, um, to encounter this yes. summer. Will you start this summer? Yes. I'm going to start this summer. Now let's fast forward. Let's mm -hmm. think a couple of years down the road after you have all of your data collected. What is the best thing, most interesting thing, coolest thing that you could discover? Mm. Well, I don't know if it's the coolest thing, but I think the best thing when it comes to pearl shell conservation would be if we find that pearl shells can use a whole variety of salmonids and we find that these non-viable populations aren't recruiting just because there's some disconnect between them and these salmonids, considering that pearl shells occupy trout habitat, I would think that's probably the easiest way to conserve them if that was the issue is just to make sure there are trout or some monads available to them since they're already in that habitat. Right. And then you're, earlier you were talking about the habitat, like the habitat quality of the water, the water quality and the sedimentation and presumably what's good for the fish is also good for the mussels. Right. And mussels are great habitat or um, great environment indicators. And what, so what kinds of things do the mussels provide? What do they do when they're in their environment that, that allows you to, to use them as some, a sort of signal about the, the quality of a place? Yeah. So mussels provide a ton of benefits to fish and aquatic ecosystems. So for one, they filter a lot of water. And I'm not talking about like an insignificant amount of water. I'm talking about like 20 gallons a day and for a single muscle for a single adult muscle. Wow. So, you know, the average Montana resident uses about a hundred gallons a day. And so that'd be like five adult muscles. <laughs> I think that's really funny. That yeah. is a crazy stat. Yeah. So, wow. so they filter a lot of water, but the most important benefit they provide is through nutrient cycling and nutrient cycling is when muscles take suspended nutrients or organics in the water column and they pull them out and then they deposit them onto the sediment as these biodeposits. And they're just like these larger clumps of organics that are like nutrient dense. And then benthic invertebrates and primary consumers can then use those organics as a food source. They're pulling things out of the water so that other organisms can make use of it. Correct. Wow. So really important to have around. Populations are declining, and hopefully your work is going to provide us some insights on how to to re, re, um, restore those populations or improve their conditions. It sounds yeah. like pretty important, pretty important stuff. I think so. <laughs> um, we end each of our interviews 
with our, our sort of freebie question, asking our, our interviewees if they have a favorite animal or a favorite plant or if they have one of each, and then to tell us why they've made that choice. Okay, so I'll give you my favorite plant. It's a flower called elephant's head. Have you ever seen that? I'm not sure I have. So it's Describe this, it for us. Yeah, so it's a fairly tall flower, and it has like maybe like 50 to 30 flower heads, and each one is purple, and it looks exactly like an elephant head. That's that I mean, exactly. Amazing. You guys should Google it when when you get off this call and or podcast, right? And so they actually the each flower will have like the head of the elephant with the flappy ears and this trunk that sticks out. And so not only are they really cool flowers, but when I was working in the Centennial Valley, they kind of signaled to me when my life was going to get easier. So <laughs> there was this these sample sites I accessed through a canoe. And I was working in wilderness and I would leave my canoe at the end of the day on the stream bank. And to get back to my canoe, I would have to park my truck on the road because it was wilderness and hike into my canoe, which was about only about a mile walk, but it was through this marsh. And so like with every step, you're sinking to your knees and then there's like these hummocks in the way. And for some reason, I remember it as I was always carrying T-posts on this walk, oh, which I'm, I'm not sure why. It just I, gets harder and harder. Yeah. But whenever there were elephant's head flowers, you knew the ground was a little bit harder. And so it was like you could like kind of see them and you're like, oh, I won't be sinking in the muck up there. You know, I'll be able to walk. The walk elephants flat. are coming. Yeah. So it was like kind of like exciting. Like oh, I was like, where wow. are these elephant heads, you know? Man, now, yes, now I feel like I have to go find some. Yeah, they're beautiful. I am quite familiar with the hummocks you were talking about, and, and it would be a nice um, welcome yeah. sign in the in the distance that, that things were better mm-hmm. to come. Okay, so that's your plant. Great yes. answer. Great reason why I can totally get behind mm-hmm. that. Favorite animal? Um, you know, I think it changes all the time, but I would say... Right now, my favorite is the riffle shell mussel because I recently <laughs> was watching videos of how it like captures a fish in order to infect it with its glochidia, it, like literally snaps on its head, snaps <laughs> shut, and it baits the fish in. And then they even like suffocate the fish a little bit. You are blowing my mind about I, these muscles. I know. And so then what happens is once the fish like goes limp because it's been suffocated a little bit. The muscle will let it go and the fish will sit there and start inhaling oxygen and just gilling really bad because it's trying to um, not get, suffocate, yeah, not die. And the muscle takes advantage of that and then shoots its glochidia out of it because as the fish is gilling, it's slushing around that water around its gills to get oxygen. That's when the glochidia can infect it. Oh, my goodness. And there's videos of this. So wow. I'd say today that's my favorite. That also seems like a, a very very good choice yeah where would you find this species of mussel you know i think they're in eastern uh united states huh yeah they're not around here who knew all yeah. the mysteries of the mussels on uh, revealed here yeah. today and many more many more that i clearly have to learn about yeah. well Kristen, um thanks for really taking the time um to introduce us to the world of mussels and to tell us about you and your research. And I I really wish you the best of luck as you embark on this new research chapter. Thank you. I appreciate that. And thank you to you for listening to today's Voices of Conservation Science. If you're enjoying our podcast, please share it with a friend. 
And even better, leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, and Stitcher.